Parker, and uh, I know Ryan because of, I've met him through both my daughter, uh, Joelle, at Truman, and also through Jesse Schrader, who was one of my students. And Ryan, you did a you've done uh, you did a degree at Truman, right? I did, yeah, a bachelor's in philosophy and religion. And then you went to AMBS. Uh, am I saying that right? Yes, Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary. And did uh, did you do a Master of Divinity there, or I did. My focus was the, uh, theological and biblical studies. And and so you, uh, as I understand it, you were also teaching a little bit at AMBS. So I did actually. It was a unique situation. My my second second year of the MDiv program at AMBS, they ask each student to do a some sort of um, ministry internship, and so there was a need for someone to teach Greek, and I had had uh, something like 28 hours of Greek in college, so I got to teach Greek one semester, and the next semester I um, was in a was in a congregation, and then the year before I came here to Baylor, I was a sessional instructor um, of Greek and Latin, both, so I spent a year teaching. And now at, at Baylor, what, uh, tell us what, what, what your focus is there. So I'm in PhD program at Baylor University in New Testament, um, and kind of New Testament generally, more specifically Paul, and even more specifically than that, I'm interested in Paul's ecclesiology and, and connecting that with creation. Um, and that's what you've, uh, Ryan has shared with me uh, some wonderful papers. And so could you talk, just talk a little bit, uh, you're making a connection there that most people uh, may, may not uh, occur to them to make. And so explain uh, what you're doing with Paul and agrarianism. Yeah, so with Paul, I... My interest in Paul started, I mean, my first semester of Truman, long before I ever became interested in agriculture or our peace, uh, for that matter. And so as I developed interest in, in agrarianism and, in, and as I became a Mennonite and um, cared about peace, I, I never lost that interest in Paul. And, and then as I began to study kind of agrarian interpretation of the Bible more, I, I realized um, for some good reason, Paul's left out, except for Romans 8. Um, Romans 8 is, or maybe Colossians 1, but, but Romans 8 is the typical proof text, right, of creation is groaning. Um, and so I started, really, my last year of seminary asking, okay, what if, what if Paul is really brought into this conversation on creation care uh, on his own terms? Not, not in terms of proof texting Paul and seeing what we can sort of mine from his writings, but... Um, Thinking ecclesiologically, I think uh, I think Paul is is not only a Christocentric thinker, but he's also an ecclesiocentric thinker. He's he's um, election is is sort of at the forefront of his mind, or it's up there uh, somewhere. And so I, I began to wonder, okay, what does agrarianism and sort of my own Mennonite heritage of agrarianism have? Uh, what what can Paul say to that, if anything? And and the paper you read is sort of my first attempt to try to articulate what an ecclesiology would look like um, with an eye toward care for creation. So if we take Paul's ecclesiology seriously, what does that say about the church's care and relationship with creation? 
And I, I've just, uh, we just finished a, a study here at Plowshares of Galatians. And it struck me once again, I, uh, just the, the sense in which uh, the, there is an underlying theme uh, in, in Paul, and you just almost hit it everywhere. I don't, I, I'm not saying it's unique, to Paul, but the idea of a kind of, uh, in the terms of Irenaeus, of a unified economy that is inclusive then uh, of what God is doing in creation. Uh, that is that in Galatians and I think in Romans, you know, that, that passage, the Romans 8 passage, is the culmination of a, a picture of Pauline thought in which he, as in Galatians, is arguing for in this unified economy. God is doing one thing, and who God is is completely expressed, fully expressed, in and through creation and recreation in Christ. Is that I'm wondering if that segues into partly what you're thinking with ecclesiology. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, too, if you follow the, the flow of, of Romans 1 through 8, um, Paul starts with sort of the, the famous condemnation of Gentiles, and then he turns that on Jews. Um, and so uh, even though he's condemning the Jews, he in some ways, I think he's working from a larger framework of, of all of creation is enslaved to sin. So, um, and he's also working out of concern for election, you know, in the Old Testament, the covenant people. So if God, for Paul, I think if God's going to be faithful to Israel, God's got to be faithful to all of creation, which is enslaved, Israel being part of creation that's enslaved. So God's faithfulness is sort of uh, first and foremost, and it's most zoomed in, point is is Israel, and then we zoom out to Gentiles, and then we zoom out again to, to non-human creation. All of that is, we're all enslaved. Um, so yeah, by the time, it's perfectly natural for Paul in Romans 8, I think, to get to creation, creation groaning for the revelation of the children of God, uh, because that's where his argument has led him up to that point. Because what he's, and, and you know, correct me here if I'm misinterpreting, but what the church, what is happening through the church, uh, is not just simply concerned uh, with the souls or the people that, uh, you know, but rather that what is happening, uh, rather through a select group of people or a, a uh, but rather what's happening is cosmic. And yes. that's, that's what he's been arguing throughout. Absolutely. I mean, I think... Uh, there, you know, there's a debate in Pauline scholarship over continuity with the Old Testament and with covenants or versus discontinuity. And I think one area that's undeniably in continuity with with the with the narrative of the Old Testament is is election. God is kind of a stubbornly uh, covenantal God in that God chooses a particular people on behalf of all of the nations or creation. So I think Paul. Paul expands that vision of the people of God on behalf of to creation in Romans. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's there to that extent um, in the Old Testament. I'm thinking particularly the prophets. There's definitely imagery there of of creation as either a kind of co-worker of God with 
uh, in terms of judgment against Israel or the nations, uh, but but in terms of God electing a people on behalf of all of the cosmos. I mean, there's yeah, there's a grand cosmic vision of salvation in Romans that um, is pretty undeniable. And uh, you're tying this. I know in this uh, paper you sent that you're tying two things together that you again are you're saying that normally we would talk about uh, Paul in terms of new perspective or talk Paul in terms of apocalyptic understanding. Explain how you're drawing those together. Yeah, I think actually since I've written that paper, I'd probably, instead of saying new perspective, I'd say covenantal or salvation historical, because I mean, the apocalyptic school draws from new perspective themes. But the point of that is that, um, Paul is, and this is simplifying the situation, but Paul is either read, this is the New Perspective camp, um, folks like N.T. Wright uh, and others, Scott McKnight being one other one, read Paul as a continuation of Israel's story. Um, so Paul's gospel is the fulfillment. Wright has a whole book called The Climax of the Covenant. So Jesus is the climax of that covenant. And now the apocalyptic school would emphasize more heavily, heavily, more heavily a sort of apocalyptic eruption or invasion of God into the cosmos from outside of history. Um, And so to talk of continuation of that story is something that doesn't make much sense to, to this, this stream of Pauline scholarship um, because of the, the creation and the cosmos being enslaved and, um, uh, to, to speak of continuing a story, the apocalypse, the apocalypse of Jesus is kind of the end of history, the end of, of, of that. So I want to combine them and say uh, God's faithfulness is both to the covenant and the covenant people, um, Israel, and um, it's a salvation from slavery to sin and evil and death and, um, and um, Satan, as Paul talks about. But um, yeah, so I want to bring both of those together, but I, I want to do it in a way that doesn't lose sight of of both the continuities with the story of Israel and the radical discontinuities. The fact of the matter is that that the gospel Paul is espousing is is in many ways something that couldn't have been predicted by the Old Testament narrative, but in many ways I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, the implications of that are primarily are, are well. Where I get most excited is, is thinking about the church, because like I said, the most, what is most continuous, I think, with the Old Testament is uh, election, God electing a people on behalf of, uh-huh. of the nations or of the world. And, and he ends that, I mean, that's the, the, the thrilling thing with Paul. You know, at the end of Galatians, he uses a phrase, and as far as I know, it doesn't appear anywhere else. He says, the Israel of God. Yeah. Uh, a similar thing happens, you know, at the end of Romans 9 to 11, that all Israel will be saved. And, of course, what he's talking about there is not ethnic Israel, or, uh, but what he's, what he's, I think, under, uh, what he's talking about is salvation for all, that Israel then is constituted through, you know, the two peoples, the the believing Jews, the the believing Gentiles, and that this then is universal salvation. But he gets there, 
I mean, you you have to you you have to have Israel of the flesh, as he calls it, to have the language of Israel of God. Uh, and so it, it's like he's doing that uh, in in uh, all of his letters that he's almost creating a new vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Is that what? So when you use the word apocalyptic. Is that partly what you're thinking, that it is this kind of breaking in, revolutionary breaking in of an alternative kingdom? Yeah, and I, I think uh, there's very little, if you, if you read the Old Testament, there's very little concept of uh, God battling with evil, evil forces. It starts to get there in Chronicles, um, you know, in Daniel. But I think that's a development that, that's coming up, and for Paul, that's the revelation. That's the that's the apocalypse that comes with the gospel. Is that we're all enslaved, and so breaking into that is God creating this people in Christ. Um, and I think that's the key phrase for Paul. Um, but yeah, and so there's parallels with Jesus's language of the kingdom of God being near and that sort of thing. Uh, this is a this is a new thing, and yet uh, it's 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 not new because it was expected. But uh, it, the way in which that, that expectation is fulfilled is kind of scandalous. Uh, and hence, Jesus' conflicts with the authorities throughout the gospel accounts. Um, yeah. That, uh, and so what you're describing, it's almost something that I think we've, I, 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 that we've lost in the Western theological tradition, maybe, that I mean, obviously, that the, the, this entire conversation is couched in an understanding, uh, first of all, that uh, it's not you die and go to heaven. It's that's not what what it's about. But it's that you know that heaven has come to earth in the New Jerusalem. Um, and the question there, and and I think you've done some work then with the imagery of New Jerusalem. Talk, talk a little bit about what, what your idea of that is. Yeah, so I, I became interested because I, I organized a couple of conferences and seminary on land and discipleship, and I come at that question from a, I, I grew up in a rural area. I'm very passionate about rural church. Uh, so, but I was continuously encountered with this uh, idea that, well, you know, creation began in a garden, but it ends in a city. Uh, and implied there's God has a preference for the city. So I, I became interested in the, the imagery of New Jerusalem and wondered, okay, what is, what is John doing with that imagery? And out of that came a paper that I published uh, arguing that if you pay attention to how John's constructing that image of the New Jerusalem in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation uh, and how he's using prophetic imagery, particularly from the end of Ezekiel, um, from Zechariah and from Isaiah, I think you you end up with uh, John's not talking about a place. John is constructing an image of a people. Um, you know, if you, if you really if you read it with that lens, I think it makes sense. If, I mean, this is where God dwells on earth. Um, this is a place to which all the nations stream. You know, this is a place where uh, the sea is no more. Right, so the image of the Old Testament image, the ancient Near Eastern imagery of the sea being the enemy of Yahweh. So Yahweh's enemies are vanquished from from this place. Um, 
you know, there's no need for a sun because Yahweh is the light within this place. And so, um, yeah, I, I mean, the, the article gets into intertextuality and, and talking about the, how John's being created with this, with this language. But I really think, I really think more than, I, I don't think this is a, a description of a place. I think it's, it's a description of the church. And it's John saying to the people to whom he's writing, um, this is, this is you if you, you know, he says, come out, my people, in, I think, Revelation 18. Uh, if you come out from the empire, if you, if, you, um, if you conquer as the lamb conquers, as he says uh, in some of, the letter, some of the individual letters in chapters 2 and 3, um, then this is who you are. Yahweh will dwell with you on earth, and the new heavens and the new earth will be centered in you. And um, what sort of animated a lot of that concern was uh, Guy Hirschberger was a 20th century Mennonite theologian I've read a lot of, and he has a phrase called colony of heaven. Uh, And he talks about how the church is the colony of heaven is the church, the gathered community whose citizens follow the way of the cross. And he says, he laments that the unfortunate reality is that um, the church too often tries to be the colony of heaven and the world at the same time. And what I see in Revelation is John saying, you can't be both. If you give yourself to this, this vision, uh, you know, this, this new Jerusalem will be, you, you will embody this new Jerusalem. Um, which I think is very much in line with what I'm trying to do with Paul. Um, Paul's trying to create these communities in the midst of the Roman Empire that embody an alternative, um, that are an alternative, that they receive this gift of, of the gospel, salvation, of redemption, and to the world embody this this way of being that's only possible in Christ, uh, that only makes sense in Christ. So uh, I think N.T. Wright uses the idea of new temples or communities, or but uh, the the imagery uh, then, if you would take what you're doing with Revelation, go back to the Gospel of John. Uh, and, you know, in John at several places, uh, he's talking about the, the household of God, the family of God. In places, I think that we, you know, as you're saying with the temple, what we're thinking when we read the Gospel of John, again, we're thinking place instead of people. And mm-hmm. so when he uh, says, well, I go and, you know, prepare uh, a, a place for you, uh, or that you know that and that there are many rooms in this mansion. I think we get the imagery that he's you know up there doing woodworking or something. <laughs> yeah. And and I, I assume that what is happening there that there is a consistency in John that no he's talking about the family the how in other words the language even there uh, is actually household. The yeah. thing that's being prepared is the household of God. Uh, so that once you shift from thinking in terms of a place or location to a people, then you go back and, and you know, the, the imagery is, well, what is being prepared is a preparation that seems to be taking place now in the household of God. Is it? Right. Would you buy that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, 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 that, that makes sense. Of I haven't 
I'm not reading John right now, obviously, but, but um, there's a reason that the Gospel of John and Revelation are associated. They may not be, have been written by the same person, but, but they have a similar vision, and they're um, both of the people of God and of this apocalyptic vision of stark contrast between the, the, the people of God and the world. Um, so, yeah, that makes sense to me. And that's sort of what my, my argument is throughout, that I think what tends to happen in, in biblical scholarship is that we, we our expectation is we're going to find something different in the John of the Apocalypse and the, the Gospel of John, or we're going to find something different in Paul. But what you're describing is at a deep level, at, at, at what I would call, I'm, I studied linguistics, you know, the deep grammar of this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that there is an accord then that they're they're all hitting the same notes. They may not be using the same vocabulary. They may not have gotten there in the same way. And so your picture, I thought your picture there, do, uh, describe for a little bit uh, the dimensions of the New Jerusalem and uh, the implications of that. Oh yeah. Um... It's funny if if you if you look at the if you pay attention to the dimensions of the New Jerusalem and there's actually a map you can find it online I can't remember where it is but that sort of sets the New Jerusalem according to the dimensions John lays out on top of the Roman Empire it's actually bigger than the Roman Empire the New Jerusalem I mean it's this massive uh, it's a it's a cube literally I mean it's it's the same distance wide as it is across as it is tall it's this I think I say in a paper, it's an image so fantastical that no one could actually think that it was a literal image of a literal city. Um, and if you think about, from John's perspective, the Roman Empire is the world. Um, so John is using an image of a city that is the entire world. So he's, I mean, it's just like in the end of Matthew, um, go out into all the nations and I'll be with you. You know, it's, it's this image of the gospel. If you are, you know, if you, if you, uh, embody the image that John or the vision that John has laid out in the apocalypse um, the gospel will spread and it will take over and it will not take over the whole world I don't want to use that language but it will it will reach to the ends of the earth um, I think that's what he's doing with this image of this city that's so astronomically huge and, and unreal that it can't possibly be a real city um, How does that relate back to an agrarian understanding. Yeah, so to get back around to agrarian, um, I think, uh, how do I want to connect that? The easiest way to say that. The gospel is the redemption of all of creation. And you've got this this theme in the Old Testament of, of the land. Um, Walter Brueggemann has done some really cool stuff with the land in the Old Testament. But that... Traditionally, we've understood that that theme to just kind of go away in the New Testament. There's a whole book called um, On Paul and the Land by W.D. Davies. Um, or no, just the New Testament and the Land. He's got a large section on Paul. Uh, what I would argue is that, that the vision of the inheritance of the land is, is expanded to all of creation, and John's, John's imagery in, in, in New Jerusalem fits that. I uh, edited a book a few years ago, and in the book is a chapter I wrote on Psalm 37, and I argue in there that that's the same similar, a similar 
a vision is being communicated of the meek will inherit the land, the poor will inherit the land. It's this call, this call to this resolute kind of agrarian way of life. Uh, and Psalm 37, it's, it's like an agrarian manifesto. It's, uh, it's almost like Wendell Berry could have written it. Um, but, I, I, yeah, I think if we, if we take seriously that the gospel is the redemption of all of creation, and we take seriously this vision, this ecclesiology that I think runs throughout the whole of the New Testament, um, and we take seriously the goodness of creation. Goodness, creation is good. It's enslaved, but it's, it's still good. Um, then I, I don't, for me, thinking through these things, I don't know how I end up anywhere except an agrarian kind of life that is um, characterized by humility and um, kind of subjecting ourselves to the order of creation that God has designed. Um, yeah, so it's a kind of a roundabout way to connect back to the agrarian ideal. But for me, uh, even in the midst of the city where Paul is founding communities, the gospel and the people of God that grow out of that gospel uh, have a lot in common with the kind of new agrarian vision that's, that's pop being popular, that was popular, you know, post-World War II America with, uh, with Wendell Berry and all of his friends and is still popular today. It's an image of a people living peacefully, peaceably, uh, in all of the meanings of that term. Well, you, uh, as you pass through this, you know, you mentioned the sense of enslavement, both of the people and of uh, creation. So uh, how do you connect atonement theory then uh, to your understanding of the, uh, you know, exodus from that enslavement? Yeah, that's a good question. I, my understanding of the atonement, I, well, I mean, there are, you know, it's popular New Testament scholars, for New Testament scholars to say there are many images of the, of the atonement in the New Testament. I think that's true on one level, but I think, again, getting to the deep grammar of things, the, the sort of image out of which I think grows all of these different images is, is kind of apocalyptic um, enslavement. Creation is enslaved. Humans are enslaved. Why, why couldn't Israel fulfill its vocation of being a light to the nations? Because it's enslaved, uh, just like the Gentiles are enslaved. And so Christ comes. I sort of, well, I, I very much reject classical satisfaction theory of the atonement because I don't think what's happening in the atonement is God's wrath being satisfied. What I think is we've got a loving God uh, who sees that this election thing that he's worked out, right, this working with a people can't work until the problem of slavery to evil and sin and, and um, death is solved. And as Paul says in Romans, uh, how, do, how are you free from a, from a uh, contract? He uses the imagery of marriage. I'm trying to think where that is now. Anyway, uh, how, is it, how, how are you free from, how is a woman free from a marriage contract, the death of her husband? In the same way, right? We, Romans 7, 1 to 6, is that where you're referencing? It was, yeah. I was, I was trying to remember if it was Romans 6 or 7. I don't, I have my Bible in front of me now. He's using the imagery of the woman who, if her husband has died, is free 
uh, to consort with a man if her husband is living and if she consorts with another man, yeah, uh, yeah. she's guilty of adultery. And then Paul later can say, um, we are dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. And so I think what he's working with there is Christ is the sacrifice. He's a substitution, but not a substitution in the, the way that we've become accustomed to think about it in evangelical circles of um, sort of instead of God's wrath, you know, in, instead of it being exacted upon every individual, it's exacted upon Christ, his sacrifice. But instead, it's God coming to earth in human form and taking on the uh, and doing doing for us what needed to be done in order for creation to be freed from humanity, and that is death. Or, I'm sorry, not freed from humanity, freed from sin and evil. The only way to be free from sin and evil is to die. Um, and so Christ dies, and then we are in Christ. So then there's this colony of heaven idea that comes back in for me is, by being in Christ, we're a people who are freed from sin, freed from death, free from evil. Um, not yet totally, but... Again, getting back to Revelation, if we, if we fully receive this gift in, in the way that we're called to, we can be that colony. We can embody that, um, that freedom to the world. So the atonement for me is primarily redemption, uh, redemption from our slavery. Uh, but I also don't want to lose track of the, the – the, um, we're also, as humans, complicit with with our um, captors, uh, we choose sin. So there's an element of the gospel, the kind of traditional Protestant understanding of free from our guilt. I don't want to lose sight of that totally. Um, but I think the emphasis definitely falls on uh, redemption. I don't know if I've done a good job of explaining it, but that's my thinking at this point. Make the, make the connection for me. But you're, you're talking about sin and death as enslaving, both of humans and nature. What's the connection? The connection between enslavement of creation and of humans? Yes. Well, I think, well, the reality is that, that humans are part of creation. So insofar as uh, creation is enslaved, humans are too. Um, but I, I think um, with Adam came sin and death, right? And I'm not, I don't want to talk about original sin in the sense of um, a hereditary sin passed on by physical descent, but rather sin entered the world and death entered the world with Adam. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 5 through 8. So it's almost like Adam's obedience for Paul in, in, opened the gates for these cosmic powers of evil that come in um, and, and you know, they, they rule the day now, or they, it looks as if they rule the day. They did then. It looks as if they do now. Um, but it's very, I mean, very much martial imagery that we're talking, that I'm dealing with. Uh, God invades the world in Christ, <laughs> invades enemy territory and, and through the gospel creates these outposts of people who are free from, from the dominion of these powers. And we're sort of light on a hill or uh, a city on a hill or light top of bushel basket. Um, so, so we, it's in the church that I think 
the real healing of creation can begin to happen. And this connects back again to the creation care and agrarian things. I'm not so, I'm not so interested in, well, I'm not at all interested in, in going out and trying to change policies, uh, political or government policies and trying to, to do things that will um, pass laws that will help the environment. Not, not that those are bad things, but I think as a pastor, as a theologian, I'm, what I'm most interested in is helping the church in our colonies of heaven, be a light and embody uh, a peaceable kind of existence that includes um, an existence on the land. One of my teachers at AMBS um, taught me to think in terms of patience, so a patient way of life. Hmm. Um, and I think patience is the word that characterizes it best, is patient and resolute dependence on God, and patient receipt of the gift of the gospel over and over again. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, maybe, maybe you're already in the midst of answering this question. But that is that uh, what does nonviolence have to do with agrarianism? Everything. Um, I think, well, first of all, if you, if you think about just on a grand scale, war is, is probably the most environmentally destructive reality in the world. Um, just a quick Google search will show how environmentally destructive violence can be. Um, but when I think about agrarianism, I, I, I think of uh, my friend Michael Stevens wrote an essay, uh, and I can't remember the name of the book that it appeared in, but he talks about Barry's, Wendell Berry's um, agrarian pacifism. Uh, it's a sort of rooted peaceableness. That I mean, in my mind, I can't imagine anything more peaceable than then rooting oneself in a piece of land, on a piece of land, committing oneself and one's family self to live um, in tune with that place and embodying the gospel by your peaceable existence in, on that land and in that community. Um, I, I can't imagine anything less violent than, than saying, I'm going to reject what the world says I should be doing in terms of pursuing uh, all of these, um, well, goals like economic goals or, you know, rejecting that whole system and instead saying, I'm going to root myself here and I'm going to take my life from this land. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how I connect for me, the way I think about creation care, uh, and agrarianism is at its core is this concern with kind of patient peaceableness, um, that I think the gospel calls us to. So we can talk about peace all day, um, but at the end of the day, if we're still taking our, we're still shopping at grocery stores and getting our food from an industrial system that destroys God's creation, um, that depends upon oil, then we're still benefiting from other people committing acts of violence, either uh, in the name of oil um, or acts of violence against creation and the growing of this food and the transporting of it. So for me, I mean, my, my concern in college, you know, when I was a freshman or sophomore, began with, okay, I need to rethink this violence thing. I think Jesus is calling me to nonviolence. It led very quickly, within a period of two years, to I've got to be a farmer. Um, and I've got to try to feed my community in a, in a way that doesn't leave the land destroyed. Um, and for me, that's always been also a missional kind of thing, is um, – the best way I know how to preach the gospel is doing it while picking weeds. Um, 
and that's that's rung true for me over and over again in my in the last eight or ten years of my life. And clearly, you're, the the term violent, the word violence here. Maybe we need to pause a minute and 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 say that you know often I think when we get images violence um, that we think of, of physical violence or the obvious cases of war. How, how do you, how would you define violence? Well. I struggle with that. I think, for me, violence is one of those things you sort of know it when you see it. Um, I mean, I grew up in a... My dad was very violent and abusive. So my where my first thought, where my mind first goes is uh, interpersonal violence. Um, it's, And then my next... My mind next goes to coercion. Um, it's forcing someone physically to do something that you... Um, that they aren't inclined to do. And then the next place my mind goes is is violence against creation um, can take lots of forms that don't look like violence as traditionally conceived. So I think, I don't know, maybe I would define it as broadly um, an action that's out of step with the good order of creation, maybe. Hmm. Um, so violence toward another person, while it's all too common in our world, I think is out of step with God's, uh, the order of God's creation as originally designed. Violence against uh, the land is out of step with that. Now, I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to say violence against, I think there's, what we consider violence, for instance, toward animals is not always violence, I think. There's a that part of God's creation is out of death comes life um, on a very sort of real earthy level. Um, anyway, I'm sort of getting a field. But I think I would define it maybe as, yeah, just uh, an action that's out of step with God's good order of creation. Uh, I mean, I, I think I would go so far as to equate sin and violence. And that, that, may not, uh, that may not immediately resonate with people because, of course, most people want to preserve a form of violence yeah. that, that is not sin. But what, I think once we understand that, what we, what, that ultimately that what we mean by violence is simply uh, this alienation and, and force for alienation, that we take up in ourselves, toward other people, toward the earth, uh, that it is systemic uh, and is constitutive of a world that ultimately is alienated from God. So that uh, in that sense, the defeat of sin is then the overcoming of violence. I think that's right. I think I think we're not saying anything different from one another. I... I, I, I if we're talking about from from my angle that I said initially, if violence is an action that's out of step with God's good order of creation, I mean that's sin. Um, sin is is um, if you're thinking about it in terms of cosmic power, it's that which corrupts God's good order of creation. Or if you're thinking about it in terms of just individual actions, it's complicity with that cosmic power of sin. So yeah, I think. Um, the 
overcoming of sin, the defeat of sin is definitely the defeat of violence. And I, and I understand that most people would violently resist that definition. Absolutely. <laughs> because uh, what, what is wanted in typical evangelical Christianity is that there would be modes of violence that we would have access to as Christians that would not implicate us in sin. And my point would be, uh, no, actually, uh, the, and, and what you're describing in your picture of the New Jerusalem in ecclesiology, that this alternative form of life, this peaceableness, if we understand violence in, as this sort of pervasive, all-inclusive understanding as constituting one world, then when we talk about the alternative of peace, then we get the imagery that the logic of the one is completely undone uh, in the other. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what, for most people, the logic of violence uh, is, is just a necessity, that they can't imagine life uh, apart from, or even think apart from, that necessity. And I think that the imagery of a, a new world, an alternative order, is inclusive of a nonviolent epistemology, a nonviolent way of thinking that does not fall back upon that necessity. Absolutely. And I thought what I meant by patience, um, I think of patience almost as a synonym of nonviolence. Um, patience as a a refusal to give in to the short view of things, but rather to sort of give your allegiance to the long view of, yeah, violence is always the easy way out. Um, but peace, um, patience, peaceableness is, is always the long view. And in the short term, it might not seem like the best choice, but in, in the long run, I think, uh, it, for me, um, it's an over, it, it makes sense. And maybe I, I, that a little bit here, this is, I, I've just come to appreciate this in uh, dealing a little bit with Irenaeus and, and uh, uh, looking again at John, that what is, what is being, by the long view, you know, what we're talking about is uh, the, the understanding that uh, what we have in Christ precedes creation and explains creation, and creation then is not a separate economy from the logos, the pre-existence logos of God. And so our participation in peace is directly a participation in the inner Trinitarian economy of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, in my own tradition, Mennonite tradition, we've it's, it's easy for us to, to, it has been and it still is, to, to make of peace an end in itself um, or to water peace down to this sort of common good uh, kind of pursuit of, of everyone. You'll be you, I'll be, you, I'll be me, and um, let's just sort of tolerate one another and create peace that way. But, yeah, for me, peace comes from our life in Christ, and I – I always I joke with my wife, if I wasn't a Christian, I, there's no way I'd be a pacifist because to me, peace doesn't make any sense apart from, from Christ. 
um, before I became a Christian, I was on my way to the military because before I was, uh, before I became a Christian, the logic of violence made a heck of a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, because the logic of peace, I don't think makes any sense unless you're, you're given this new epistemology, this in Christ, being in Christ, which, you know, gives you new eyes. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, your the your journey is an interesting one. I mean, I, I'm uh, you're sort of at <laughs> at the beginning. I'm kind of at the end. Uh, and and the great uh, thing I regret in my life is that how long it took me to come to this understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was never modeled for me. I never met a pacifist. I never heard past this teaching in in a church in a tradition in which really flowed doctrinally out of an Anabaptist tradition. Yeah. And I, I was not even aware that that, uh, that that was very much a part of the very tradition that it had been completely abandoned. And so uh, that my own coming to this, I think we all, that, that eventually the gospel takes you there, but some of us are slower than others. Yeah. But I think that that's the the thing that we need so desperately in the church that once people here uh, understand of this uh, the un- alternative world that you can enter into, uh, then it it falls into place. Not you know the the peaceableness is very you know maybe nonviolence. We're always dealing in negatives that, yeah. that uh, you know it's not violence or it's you know passive is kind of. Uh, uh, or uh, uh, passiveness is there, you know. Uh, well, no, actually what we're talking about is a force, a positive force for the good, but is not just the negation. In fact, violence is the negation, and it is a parasite that feeds off of an originary peace. Absolutely. And that's why I've lately started to say patience or patient way of life rather than non-resistance or non-violence. Yeah, because it's not just an absence of something. It's a living into of something much, much deeper and more exciting, I think, than than just what pacifism or non-violence usually connotes. so it's not just for me, you know, connecting this with food or agriculture. It's not just a rejection of a particular way of growing food, but it's a it's a living into of a much more exciting way of growing food. I think. Uh, yeah. When I, when I told uh, Joelle I was going to uh, uh, talk to you, she she immediately came up with a series of questions, uh, <laughs> and uh, one of her questions was uh, concerned with uh, specifically. Uh, the idea of food. Um, she says, uh, how is the church equipped to respond? Uh, well, let me go. Let me try this one. Uh, uh, how do, how should the church church's food culture change? Yeah. That's, how should the church's food culture change? Well, I mean, we live in a culture that, that doesn't care about food. I mean, if you go, we throw away something like 40% of all the food that's purchased in this country. Um, so, I mean, the, the first 
way that I think, and I, I see this, I see this happening in, in many congregations I've been a part of, is caring about food, coming together with one another and enjoying good food, um, caring about how it was made and who made it. And um, one of the coolest things to me about Mennonite churches that I've been a part of is potlucks and there are these recipes that are just passed down and recipes that you can't make with throwaway ingredients you can get from uh, from a grocery store. Recipes that take good food that was grown in family gardens, you know, and I think that will go a long way toward changing people's minds. And more than anything, how the church's food culture change is if we just, again, if we live into this vision of, of patience or being in Christ or nonviolence, however you want to call it, um, I think if you're being faithful to that vision, it leads inevitably to a real deep concern for food. Um, it might take some people longer than others, but it, it's there. Um, that may test something on you. See if, uh, <laughs> but, um, that what you're describing, you know, that in the Mennonite church, you eat together, you have potluck here at, uh, at the forging plowshares. We, uh, we, reg- we, every week we eat together. But what we're doing when we're eating together, we're just presuming that that is itself what uh, is meant then in the idea of the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Uh, that it's not so much that Christ is present in a little cracker and a cup of a little cup of juice, but the imagery, of course, is of a supper, a shared meal. That was being abused in Corinth. Clearly, it was a meal that was being abused. Absolutely. And so that if we understand that the church constitutes itself differently as a culture, and one of the prime things of any culture is the way you eat. If you've ever spent any time in in a foreign country, you know, I was in Japan for 20 years, Japanese eat different. Uh, Well, in the church, we should eat different. Doesn't the idea of communion then tie directly into changing up our understanding of food culture? Absolutely, I think it does. I, if we began to reimagine the Eucharist as a as an agape meal, or a love feast, or a, a potluck, you know, which at its I mean, what was happening in Corinth was a potluck, a weekly potluck. Um, yeah, I think the the opportunity is there for a radical rethinking of 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 food and how the church relates to food, which leads to land. You know, which leads. I mean, there's a it's sort of a yeah, it's a kind of never ending. But I mean, I you know when I when I think about communion, the Eucharist. Um, if Christ is there with us eating or there with us at our fellowship as we're enjoying the Lord's Supper. Um, and if, if Christ is revealed in the breaking of bread, like at the end of the gospel of Luke uh, on the Emmaus road, at the end of the Emmaus road experience, then what better way to experience the new creation than, uh, or what, what there's no place more ripe for that kind of experience of the new creation of the kingdom of God than in the sharing of, of food 
And I think we have a responsibility if we're taking seriously this call to, to peaceableness, to the food that we're enjoying as part of our Eucharist, to know where it comes from and to be mindful of that. Um, what's most depressing to me is that this issue, this concern with food, has, has become a sort of liberal issue, a progressive issue. And so my, the people I love most, the rural people, um, don't see that as license to not care about it. Um, but I, I, that's part of my calling in life is to show that, you know, we can care about our food and we can be evangelical uh, Christians who care deeply about the gospel and we can be peaceable, patient people, um, part of this colony of heaven and connect that with creation in a way that doesn't lead to uh, places that I don't want to go. Um, Let me give the last word to Joel. She had, a, I thought she had another question here that was good. Uh, and we'll make this the last one. How is the church equipped to respond to the ecological crisis? Yeah, that's a good question. I I don't like thinking in terms of the church responding to the ecological crisis because um, that makes us seem like any other environmental organization. Rather, I, I the way I would frame it is um, in this day and age way in which the church is called to be the colony of heaven uh, has serious implications for how we um, the world is watching the world is watching how we engage with creation and how we take care of it, how we take our life from it and so the only faithful way that I've been able to come up with for how the church can engage with this is by receiving the gift of the gospel um, which entails this way of life uh, if we're for really being the people of God, I think ultimately we're going to be a people who take our life from the land in a, in a different way, um, who live in creation in a different way. And so your answer really is the way you respond is by being Christian. Yeah. But by being Christian, well, we've changed up that uh, that is then a holistic alternative, a holistic diff- a way of life. Absolutely. I, <laughs> it changes everything. Um, and if it doesn't, then we're missing out on a, a real opportunity to receive something really special. If, if our Christianity is just a, uh, something we do on Sundays, or if, it's, if it doesn't change us to our core, uh, if it doesn't give us a totally new way of looking at the world, uh, then I think we're, we're missing out. Um, and I think the fruit of that totally new way leads, I mean, for me, and in, for anyone who will listen to me, you know, it's, it's led to this commitment to an agrarian kind of ecclesiology. And maybe maybe what, uh, you know, I, that if we get the picture that, that you're describing here, you know, it's a, it can be a very difficult thing to imagine how you check out of one economy especially until you have an alternative economy up and running yeah. uh, that you can enter into and, and that it is a way of life that is modeled for you. And you see, oh, well, I really don't need. In other words, there is the sense that this world's economy, and I'm not just thinking money, but I'm not excluding money either. Mm-hmm. But it is a, a, such a pervasive thing that it, it's sort of like violence. In fact, I think it is violence. 
but it is such a hard thing. How do you check out of that? Well, I think the only way to do it is what you're describing is this, this sensibility that, Oh, we eat differently. Uh, we, we live on the land in a, in a different fashion. Absolutely. It's not something that can be done all at once. And if you try to do it all at once, uh, you get burned out. I've seen it happen. Um, so for my wife and I, you know, we're 27 and we've been married five years. It's been a, it's been an experiment in changing one thing at a time. And as, as we become aware of, Oh, this is a way for us to live more fully into the vision God's given us. So let's, let's take this step. And it's always really, really hard at first, but without fail, it's ended up to where we look back and we think, how do we ever live this? How would we ever live the way we lived before? How did we, uh, you know, even something as simple as having a television. We got, we never, we've never had a television in our married life. And that was a decision we made, uh, because we didn't want to be formed according to violent ways that we thought television would form us. And now we look back and think we could never have one of those. Um, it's just, so that, yeah, if we, the reality of sin in the world, the reality of violence is such that um, it might not even take, it might take more than one lifetime <laughs> to fully withdraw and to embody an alternative. But again, long view of things, um, we try to do everything at once, we'll get burned out, and we won't be that city on a hill. We'll, we'll end up being like the world. And I think, that's, I think that's the value in the sort of conversation we're having, is that I don't think any one of us can just set out and do this thing. Yeah. But if we can get a, a vision of this as, the, as a church and begin to model this and learn from one another, and uh, that this then, you know, becomes an alternative. I mean, it's the... Uh, you, I shouldn't have had to bang my head against the wall for 20 years, uh, you know, to figure out what the gospel's saying. It should have been there. It should have been modeled for me. And I'm thinking the same thing here, that uh, as we, as a body, we're able to share and understand uh, how this alternative, uh, you know, economy needs to function. I think then that it is a sense uh, uh, making it easier for other people to step into it. Absolutely. And the creation of communities too. I mean, that's when I finish my PhD, I want to, I want to pastor or start a community of this. I mean, the agrarian community that we're talking about this embodies an alternative um, because sometimes, sometimes in talking about this, people get the impression that I, I want a homestead and I want to be self-sufficient which I do want a homestead, but for me, it's not about being self-sufficient. It's about being radically dependent on other people and on the land in a community um, into which, I mean, you can say, come and see, come and see the way we live our life. And it's, it won't be attractive for most people um, because it is, it's really difficult, but, but it's, it's creating the infrastructure and the, the visible, you can see it. You can see this way of life being lived out uh, that, that I'm really excited about. Um, so far in my life, I've done a lot of writing about it, and I've done a lot of speaking about it, uh, and we're getting to the point where we're going to start. Uh, I mean, we live it out in many ways in our own kind of home, but as far as actually creating and, and cultivating this kind of community is um, something I look forward to a lot. 
uh, I look forward to. <laughs> I hope I. I uh, the, the, it's been very exciting seeing talking to you and seeing your vision and sharing that. And so, I hope we can share some more, uh, Ryan, and that uh, uh, we can continue the conversation. But I sure appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. I've enjoyed it a lot.